look, our investors are, are asking for market IRR returns. So we're, we're not coming in with mythical billionaires that are just ready to say, go, go make the world a better place. Everyone's doing this to ultimately get paid at the end and get paid a return that's commensurate with risk of, you know, whether it's adaptive reuse or development of, of you know, a value add project. And, and, and to be clear, we started off with a small, small group of high net worth friends and, and family type investors. And now we've scaled to where some of the largest institutions are our capital partners. And they're certainly IRR driven investing on behalf of, you know, big pension funds. I think that the mindset that we have in our industry is let's just go and, you know, crank out to a billion dollar platform. And that's really the sign of success. And not that scaling and growing and consistently, you know, making sure that you're you're moving forward isn't a very large objective of our company. But I think we're viewing this as do so, but within the confines of really being proud of the projects that you're associated with. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. Steve, welcome to the show. I'm excited. As am I, Chris. Thank you for having me. Yeah, today's going to be great. Um, all right, let's just kind of set the, the tone. How did you start your company and kind of get into real estate? Well, I guess you could say that real estate has been in my blood. My parents immigrated to the U.S. from Israel, and my father was kind of a serial commercial real estate entrepreneur. Uh, grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, when I was 14 years old, we moved to Houston because he was going and scaling his business at a time when, you know, Houston was sort of the land of the uh, the SNL and oil bust, and uh, there were just so many opportunities. There was a lot of blood on the street. So my father, who's really my hero, um, kind of sat us down as a family uh, at age 14 and said, "Hey, we're going to be moving to uh, to Houston." I kind of said, "Oh, when are we moving?" They're like, "Pack your bags. It's happening right now." <laughs> and so you know, showed up from. Uh, from, from Cali, you know, dressed as a skater, no real friends, uh, and, and came into this uh, environment where my dad is growing this business. And so every day we're basically, you know, indentured servants going in, um, really putting a lot of work in the office and, uh, go to school, come home and, um, and change and, and then go over the office. And I mean, we did everything from answering the phones to he called brokers on the back of the uh, the Wall Street Journal or the Houston Chronicle back when people were using these paper ads to talk about properties for sale to, I mean, helping on moving furniture on, you know, helping replace air conditioning units. So if you've ever read Malcolm Gladwell, um, Outliers, there's that 10,000 hour rule principle. So whether you're playing the violin or, or Bill Gates on the computer, it's sort of like you have to put in your time. So while I hated it at the time, I got my 10,000 hours of real <laughs> estate, uh, you know, from age 14 to 18, working as that indentured servant. Um, but from there, I went to University of Texas, studied accounting and law, uh, picked up my CPA, my bar card, and um, was able to practice at some amazing firms. And while I love the colleagues and you know those cerebral challenges of whether it's 
mastering tax or legal documents, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, I, I kind of hated the idea of billing by the hour and that implication that productivity was a function of the amount of hours that you're going to put in. Um, and probably even more so, I want to be involved in, in the decisions that were being made. So in 2007, went back and rejoined uh, Father's Real Estate Company, um, worked there for the next seven years, started off by running um, our finance and legal capabilities. But as you know, in a small company, you know you just wear a ton of hats. And I don't know how I got there, but eventually I was spearheading our um, leasing or acquisition functions. And man, I was just learning a ton. You know, I, I, I get asked, by lawyers and CPAs all the time now, how to transition in real estate. Um, and I'm not embarrassed to admit that literally every single day for probably the first two or three years, I, I would keep this notepad of things that I had no idea what they meant, You know, whether they're acronyms, design <laughs> ideas, construction phrases, you kind of nod your head in the meeting, you don't say anything, and then you go home and you go to Google or you start reading and, and, and you learn. And that happened for years. Um, so at, at that company, uh, we were sort of servicing some legacy assets that he had been acquiring since the nineties. It could be, you know, random raw land, suburban office buildings, just kind of, my dad is more of a trader. He gets, he gets in a great basis and, uh, at, at a great basis. And then just, um, you know, likes to, he, he could service it and ultimately w would sell it a profit. Um, but I'd say that there's sort of this lightning bolt moment that occurred. Um, we started developing some, uh, suburban office buildings on some tracks we own, I'd listened to the speech by Jeff Bezos. He said, you don't choose your passions, your passions choose you. And I can really remember there was like this lightning bolt in this meeting where these architects had presented this conceptual master plan. Actually, wasn't even very good, but it was a master plan for this project for some raw land that we owned. And it was like this moment of excitement. And I, I really realized that moment that that was, that was what I wanted to be doing. And, uh, and I really want to focus my efforts on it. So, uh, fast forward to about seven years later, you know, really hard decision. I, I, I kind of knew I wanted to go on my own, actually sweated for over a year. I realized, you know, working in a family business had sort of limitations. And, um, you know, when, when, when your father's the boss, it, it makes it difficult to go and be able to, you know, execute your own kind of radical ideas that are different from what we've typically done. Um, so man, it took me like six months to even talk to my wife at the time. We were newlyweds. And, you know, I kind of turned to her and I said, I, I really think I want to start my own business. That could mean we're starting from scratch. We'll have nothing. You know, I have no salary, uh, very limited capital to go start this business. Um, and my wife, who's, you know, my best friend, my life partner, you know, just a total badass at the time. She was a, uh, a felony prosecutor working for the, uh, the Harris County DA's office. She didn't even hesitate. She just looked at me and she said one word. She said, yes. I mean, not, not a pause, not a, a set of questions about how will we support ourselves who said, yes, like, I believe in you, go do it. And so that means I had to go do it, right? <laughs> so <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> now, now, now I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to do this. But uh, <laughs> it, it was, so, so fast, you know, fast forward, rewind back to 2014 rather. Uh, and that's when I started the company Renome Capital. So it's seven and a half years ago. And, and, and look, the premise was pretty simple, although I'm going to break it out into three parts. I wanted to form, as I wrote this down, I wrote my notes, a best-in-class urban infill development company. But now as I reflect, what does that mean? So I'm going to break it down into three parts here. The, the urban infill part, it just means that we only invest in high-barrier, centrally-located neighborhoods and the sub-markets that have proximity to great residential stock, to desirable amenities, 
And ideally, those amenities are permanent. They could be natural amenities such as parks. In Houston, we don't have any you know, rivers or, or, or mountains, but those, those would be great natural uh, amenities. They could be cultural amenities such as museums, universities, or I'd say you know the, the enriching cosmopolitan amenities like restaurants, shops, and bars. So ideally, we were going into the areas that were they were safe, but they've been improving. And by improving, I mean the education, the house prices, the median incomes, but they're not necessarily the fanciest areas where only rich older people live, right? Um, and we're going to those areas uh, not too early, not so early that it would take a decade or so to develop, and, and we're cutting in and, and trying to actually contribute. And when I said best in class, at the time, I, I probably had a different definition. I thought you know maybe it was going and um, maximizing profit, and, and that matters, but I think that definition has now evolved to where it's the most thoughtful, the most contributing project to a city or to a neighborhood or to a street. Um, it almost inherently means that we're not going to be the biggest glass tower um, that could possibly construct it under whatever the, the maximum density or FAR would be. We're also not going to be the ugliest, uh, cheapest strip center that has the highest profitability. But ideally, we're something that promotes the neighborhood, the walkability and kind of respects its context. And then finally, when I said development company, um, ironically, about 75% of our historical projects have actually been adaptive, where we just haven't decided to wipe you know, the, the, the site clear and instead um, reused some of the components. And I'd say, especially in you know, your neighborhood retail or creative office world, older buildings may have character, differentiation, you know, they have history, and so they actually serve as an advantage. Plus, from a sustainability aspect, something we really believe in, I think reusing an old building almost always is going to be more environmentally superior than you know, building something brand new. Um, so basically, in 2014, I decided to become a self-torturer and start Rideau Capital. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get into that 2014 and leaving, I think you just did a remarkable job of describing your company. If you had to say like what your edge is, so when I think of urban infill locations, especially that are mature, I think like you kind of have to adapt to what's already there. It's not like you're, a, again, a suburban office builder that you buy land and you get to just stamp widgets out and you're kind of a manufacturer of things. You kind of see what's there and then you kind of adapt to it. So is your edge finding locations? Is it understanding what a location needs? Like what makes you unique and different if you had to describe it i think it's all of the above i think it's our process so number one it's the team that we now have put together um, the team comes from a diverse background but we've got architects landscape architects um, people that are in finance and people that are in leasing but all of them sort of have this buy into the mission that we're trying to better in our developments the areas that we are involved in we're trying to be you know that that great project that becomes the place that you visit and you know the neighbors want to be at um, and so our process starts with what we call our internal charrette so we identify a site um, and that site could be maybe a tiny little building it could be something that's raw land and it's interactive so so first we think about before we even assign a team to the project what do we think belongs there what doesn't belong there what's missing um, what, what if I lived across the street, what I want to see there? And I think a lot of developers are quick to just, they get a great model. They build this awesome mousetrap and they just think, how do I put this mousetrap? Maybe 95% to, to interact with the site and just 
drop it there. And and we kind of think the opposite where every site has to have its own model and mousetrap. And so that process, it sounds a little hokey here, but it, it doesn't just start off with saying, okay, we're going to build a four-story building or we're going to assert purposes building. We think about what's missing. Um, what are kind of the words that we would use to describe the site? And they ultimately become three to five keywords that we kind of come back to in a tie break situation later on, because, you know, you get pulled a million directions. Sometimes that word could be imperfect because like, you don't want to get too fancy because that isn't appropriate. Sometimes it's historic. Sometimes it's modern, you know, it could be something like that. Um, but we try to approach the process from it's, it's, it's analytical. Um, it's left and it's right brain. Um, and, and then honestly, we just, we just believe that, uh, the best projects are the execution of these small details. And, and we sweat about those. We really, really sweat about them. So what makes us differentiated is probably it's that process and it's the care. And I'd say also, even though we're now a, a seven or eight year old company, um, it's sort of this outsider's view that like, we don't have to do what the guys, the competitor across the street would do. We should do what's right. We should do what we want to do. Um, and it kind of liberates you to really, you know, challenge the norms and create better projects. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to brag on you before I ever knew who you were. I, I drove down to Houston twice to, to look at several of your projects for something, you know, we do industrial now, but there was a period of time where we were doing a lot of mixed use development. And I kept hearing about this company in Houston. Um, and so I spent a lot of time down there. And so I'm going to ask a series of kind of loaded questions. So just bear with me. Um, so we talked about your process. And, and I had this guy, I don't know if you know, um, Eric Weatherholtz with Healy Weatherholtz properties out of Atlanta, but, but they do something similar. And I was talking to him about this the other day. Um, and everybody has kind of a different way of doing it, but there is a fine line between kind of what you said, your generic project, even when you're revitalizing a building, you can still miss it. And what he was describing is like, you miss it by not having the hand painted signs and like these little, it's all in the details. So, so bear with me here. So in your mind, when does the magic happen? Like we can walk through how a project, like you just said, okay, we're going to do a charrette and maybe we walk through how you select the architect, but you have the ability to kind of put that Midas touch and it's not something that you can just go to business school and learn. This is something that it's an art, not a, you know, it's not, um, you can't build it on a spreadsheet. So let's just talk about like that. Like, when do you go from being really, really good to absolutely great? And it's in those final details. Well, the day that you believe you're absolutely great, you're probably irrelevant, right? Yeah, that's so, fair. <laughs> but I, I, I think it's, it's like the difference is probably not just relying on any one party or any one process, but instead constantly asking yourself, how do I keep learning? How do I keep improving upon what I did before? And, and, and how do I know kind of the right amount um, where, where, to be clear, there are plenty of projects that have way too much added. There's too many movements, right? There, there's too many embellishments that are not appropriate. Um, look, I, I, I think the only way that you could be excellent is if you if you literally approach every project as though um, it's it's your opportunity, it's your first or your last one, however you want to look at it. I say this very often. You know, I'm 43 now. You know, I, I think I've got like two to three projects at best a year, and I probably am doing this for 20 or less years. So I've got 60 projects in me. 
And I want these 60 projects to be amazing and heartfelt, right? And so the day that you have that mindset and, um, and, and you're willing to also you know, walk into a room with whether it's partners or architects or landscape architects or contractors and kind of raise your hand and say, I, I hear you. And, and that is an amazing statement you made. But perhaps we can even think about it differently and, and constantly be willing to raise your voice if you have to. Um, I think also um, the day that you can probably realize that assembling your team from outsiders as well is critical. So I think in our industry, it's, it's easy to say, well, you know, this architect is, is too fancy, costs too much, um, or I don't need a landscape architect, or I can just do it in-house, or I, I've, I've got a person for that. Um, but, but you really pay for what you get, I think, especially on the, on the front end of, uh, of a real estate project. Do, do you have to have a certain type of capital, long-term patient, you know, the, these projects can't be done on a three, five year perform. I mean, you can model them, of course, but it seems like a common characteristic is you have to have folks along for the ride that are that are that are there to see things develop. And sometimes it takes a little bit for it all to come together. So when you're raising money, are you usually raising on like a five year horizon? Or are you telling people like, look, we need patient long term capital to make these areas really tick? I, I think both. I think like our investors are asking for market IRR returns. So we're, we're not coming in with, you know, mythical, you know, billionaires that are just ready to say, go, go make the world a better place. Everyone's doing this to ultimately get paid at the end and get paid a return that's commensurate with the risk of, you know, whether it's adaptive reuse or redevelopment of, of you know, a value add project. Um, and, and, and to be clear, we started off with, you know, a small, small group of high net worth friends and, and family type investors and now we've scaled to where some of the largest institutions are our capital partners, and they're certainly, you know, IRR-driven investing on behalf of you know big pension funds. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that the mindset that we have in our industry is let's just go and you know crank out to a billion-dollar platform, and um, and and that's really the sign of success. And not that scaling and growing and consistently, you know, making sure that you're you're moving forward isn't a very large objective of our company, but I think we're viewing this as do so, but within the confines of really being proud of the projects that you're associated with. Um, and 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 to, to to answer your question more directly, I mean, yeah, we're we're, we're literally looking at three to five year exits. Um, although in our dream world, um, we're not recycling capital hopefully that frequently because if we do our job and really really execute, we may even want to stay in longer. Um, and so, I'd say also w- whenever we view a project. Even though it is set up to leave in five years, we pick locations and we sort of execute the details as though we'll be in it forever. And a lot of this, ironically, is motivated by my own fear of losing. I always think, man, if we just like mess up this one project, it's it's the end of us. And so you always think like, I just have to get it right so that if you know it's two thousand seven or 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 you know COVID happens again at the same time, you're not stuck with that one project that you weren't really excited about. That you didn't believe in, right? So if you took the Heights, for example, was that one partnership that bought a lot of property and everything's happened out of that partnership? Or did it start kind of what you said is maybe you bought like the first building in a partnership, realize, okay, we have something and then raise more capital. Like if you had to just describe that deal, how, how is it all capitalized, different partnerships, one master, how does it all work together? So for Mercantile, um, there was a uh, a single high net worth investor who happens to actually be in this case my brother-in-law 
So to talk about like the the additional pressure of not messing up <laughs> a deal, right? You've got, you know, as they say, like the Thanksgiving table, you know, where, where your capital partners. Um, but he at the time, and this is when I literally had started my business maybe two years before, um, always told me, Steve, I believe in you. And, and if you find a deal that makes sense, let me know. He had he'd done very well in finance uh, through a family business. And so we, we basically accumulated a pretty small tract. I mean, it's, it's, it's for someone that's starting a business, perhaps large, but we're talking about uh, two and a half acres um, at the time, about 53 bucks a foot. So, you know, three or $4 million land a- aggregation. Um, and we did it, I mean, in a very, very scrappy way. Um, we added, uh, we added less buildings than, than the actual remodeled buildings. Right. And so the premise there was build this thing again, be prepared to sort of own it for the rest of your life. Um, but look, if somebody falls in love with it, uh, and, and, and makes you an offer, um, that, that makes sense, you know, we're always open to look at that. And essentially that's what happened there. Um, actually guys that became our really good friends, uh, over at Asana had just formed, I think they're, they're up to their second fund and we're really targeting this type of urban street retail. We had no desire to sell. We were actually in the process of, we just delivered it. It, it uh, leased up kind of exceptionally well. And, um, we we're going to refinance and just hold it. And they kind of met us right at that moment. Um, the, the guys at, at the time at HFF that were helping us with the refinance kind of told them, Hey, it's maybe a good time to swoop in here. Um, and that one we exited and, um, and the other deals we've, we've just put together in separate partnerships. Got it. All right. I'm going to take two steps back to what you were saying. I think a lot of these projects, um, you have to be willing to have I don't know if it's the guts, but to hire the nice architect, to hire the landscape designer. I think where a lot of development goes wrong is, again, it all falls into a spreadsheet. It's kind of thought through as a spreadsheet. And the dollars, where the dollars are most needed is where they're kind of taken away in the vein of kind of creating IRR. And what folks like you do is you probably achieve even more IRR by investing dollars in the things that matter. So when you're thinking about how you're going to hire an architect, uh, landscape designer, do you run with the same architect every time? Or is every process start from scratch and figure out who who fits? Like, how do you think about it from that perspective? Yeah, a- again, from like a, a passion perspective, I- I- I've just learned to love looking at design. It's like, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and look at all these architecture blogs and do it on the weekend and have this collection that's, that's you know, a library basically of, of, of architectural books. But um, yeah, what we, we've been lucky to have probably four or five firms that we've had great relationships with. And you sort of understand now, based on the project size, obviously it's asset class, your timing, uh, your budget, who you can turn to. And then we're always looking to meet um, new folks on the design part. Um, if I was going to say our firm, if, if we did have an advantage over others, it probably is in the focus on on design or maybe the attention on co-tenancy and, and how to kind of place make. Um, but the problem inherently is if you just went to the same firm over and over again, you know, as awesome as they may be, they're, they're going to sort of get their style similar. And then at some point you're sort of known as the people that did these buildings that are, you know, fairly similar. Um, but we've been, we've been lucky. We've worked with some firms from, from Austin, from, from Houston, from New York. Um, and I always like to keep it fresh, but then always like to have kind of that, that, that speed dial for a few folks that you've used before. Why are the best architects the best architects? Is it because they can imagine things that people can't imagine? Or is there something else that you've noticed that really separate them from, you know, maybe your more average architect? 
Yeah, I, I think it's it's probably it, it it goes back to this. They have a better understanding of the specific project that they're working with, the potential customer, be it a neighbor, a visitor, a shopper in the case of retail, an office user in the case of office, apartment dweller in the case of multifamily. Um, they they probably be they're they're best able to to balance that that true artistry with also the need to be commercially reasonable and have materiality that 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 is you know cost sensitive and, and can actually pencil out but i think it's it's probably just better understanding the ultimate output wants to be something that is cohesive with the neighborhood cohesive with a site in the city and not necessarily like something that you import you know to to houston from new york just because it worked in new york if that makes sense all right let's go through kind of two projects uh, two of your more well-known, or at least you know, maybe larger, more well-known. We'll start with the Montrose Collective. I think you have a cool story of kind of how that all came together, and then what are you trying to achieve there? So, so Montrose Collective is um, it's basically a five-building uh, mixed-use project at the intersection of Westheimer and Montrose, which in, in Houston is one of our great intersections. Um, about four and a half years ago now, I met the owner of this amazing sushi restaurant it's named Uchi. They have a location in Dallas. I'm sure you may have been. Uh, originated in Austin. And Uchi has this really well-known James Beard award-winning chef named Tyson Cole. And then this super mysterious behind-the-scenes guy named Daryl Kunick. And Daryl is kind of like the mastermind behind the business. And he's the one that owned the real estate in Houston where Uchi Houston was. So by background, I'm going to Uchi Houston for you know five years. Like love the place, love that area, um, and I, I pick up the phone and through a mutual friend get connected to Daryl because Daryl owns all of these random parking lots in like the heart of our cool urban core, and he has this awesome restaurant. And I just kept calling him and saying, Daryl, when are you going to develop this thing? Can we help you? You know, at the time I didn't even have the money, so I was just saying maybe we can help, like you know, fee develop it or something or partner with you. Um, and he didn't know that, of course. So fast forward two years later. Um, I get a call from Daryl. We meet on side and he says, Steve, you know, I, I like your work. You, you seem like an, awesome, an, an honest guy. Um, I'm willing to sell you this project and here's my price. Um, but it's going to come with some conditions. Number one, I want to review the architectural restrictions um, that, or the architectural uh, design that you're, you're going to put into it because I, I plan to keep Uchi there and I want to make sure it's cohesive with what Uchi is. And so first part is now we're basically like, you know, picking an architect through our seller. Second part is he wanted the right to potentially, you know, invest in the deal. Um, and, and, and it was, it was sort of like one of those things where if, if he didn't like it, I would stand to lose some, you know, some serious design costs, my earnest money and, and, and wasted time. But I also knew Daryl's a, a phenomenal reputation. You know, he's looking out for his existing business. So we signed this contract and we kind of show him the design. He loves it. He signs off and, 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 and we're off to the races. But then I have to go and aggregate to really make this, um, I think, an exceptional site, an additional four parcels that are adjoining it. So the first part is I send a guy in my office, Barton Kelly, as like this, uh, it's like shell buyer to go, you know, knock on doors and say, I've, I've just always wanted to own this property kind of thing. And we found, you know, two fourplexes that were really beaten up, but were adjacent to the property. And the cool part with real estate is once you get, you know, the, the primary street frontage, anything that you sort of aggregate additional that that's in the back that is a, you know, a five or 10,000 square foot lot. It, when, when you combine it with the whole, it's obviously worth a lot more to us. 
So we're able to piece that together. There's the strip center in the front um, that becomes available. We put that into the deal as well. And then the last piece, which is like the super complicated pieces, there's this 10,000 square foot lot on this corner that is owned by the city of Houston and it is being utilized as an active police station. Okay. Now we heard through the, you know, the kind of rumor mill that the city of Houston was looking to sell um, and dispose of all these um, legacy uh, neighborhood substations because, you know, those areas have got, gotten safer. They've centralized their command. You know, cars now have all kinds of technology in them. So literally I'm under contract to buy all this stuff, putting it together. And then I show up at city hall. I, I, I didn't even know where city hall was. And I walk in with like, you know, a friend that was basically a, a lawyer that had sort of like a, a compass food to talk to. And then we're able to arrange a meeting with the, the real estate folks. And next thing you know, with the chief of police and, and we go in there and we make a pretty awesome proposition to them. We say, can we buy your police station at a market price? And can we give you in our project this modern police station, like a storefront? We'll build it for you. You can sign a 99-year lease, pay one dollar a year, whatever you guys want, and it's a win-win. You know, we get we keep what's there. So they kind of go back and they debate a little bit and they come back to us and ask us to come back to City Hall. We show up and they say, We will accept your offer, but instead of a police station, we want you guys to build a library in your project. We're like, okay, that sounds all right. <laughs> so now we are, um, we're running full speed. We've got this site and we are designing in, in, in conjunction with everything else that's going on, a mixed use project that includes a library and go back to the city. The city says, all right, um, we've thought about it and we want to sign like a 40 year lease. And then we want to revert that, that property that you're buying from us back in 40 years. And I was like, time out guys. It's not the way it works. I'm going to build a building here that's larger than what is currently there. I can't in 40 years, just give it back to you. I'm going to have long-term leases. I'm going to have you know, banks that I'm talking to, partners. And so we convinced them to form the first ever condominium interest in the back part uh, of this lot. And now we have this condo that's going off the city of Houston. So we are lucky enough to where we get some cool renderings. Uh, Live Nation, um, which at the time is one of the, um, you know, the, the cooler tenants, you know, world's largest concert promotion company, owner of Ticketmaster, they happen to be in market for an office space that resembles their New York meatpacking office. And so we go out and we pitch to their head of real estate, um, our project. And they say, that's great. We love this. This is perfect. And, and they go and they sign a 15-year lease to um, relocate their corporate headquarters to this project. All of this, by the way, it, it's before we had closed on the site, you know, and, and, and we're, we're kind of working on everything together. The, the reason why we hadn't closed is the city still had to convey this parcel to us. Well, fast forward to like, it's December of 2019. I now have like a seven-figure commission check owed on Live Nation. I've got a full recap with JP Morgan Asset Management as my new capital partner to go on the vertical uh, uh, venture for, for this project. And I still have not had the city of Houston convey this 10,000 square foot little corner lot that has a police station on it. And it literally goes down to the last city council vote. The city council member who was the champion of it is retiring. And I mean, I remember I was there and sweating, but it passes, it goes through. We capitalize our, our deal, we recap our deal with JP Morgan, who are awesome partners. This now, mind you, is January 15th of 2020. We close our construction loan, we're off to the races, February uh, 2020, you know, mixed use project. Ground floor has retail, restaurants, creative office above, you know, and then 
the world literally just stops. It's it's coronavirus time, right? And so <laughs> literally for the next um, two months, every single time I would see a 212, a New York area code on my cell phone, I was 100% sure that that was Jamie Diamond calling a, call me and say, hey, Steve, we're your partner on this Montrose deal. We're stopping construction. <laughs> Fortunately, he never called. And Jamie's, a, I'm sure, a phenomenal man that I, I've not yet met. But um, the, good, the good news is, you know, it all kind of worked out. Uh, construction was never stalled. Uh, we actually delivered the project on time. Uh, tenants took occupancy. We're now uh, nearing about 87% lease and have a path to get to 95% ahead of schedule. Um, but those dark moments, uh, I think they really define you and they really uh, set the character of your, your company and yourself as a business person. To be a true ground up developer, especially urban infill, like the stuff you're doing, there has to be a, a bit of magician in you, a bit of crazy in you, a lot of thick skin, because the story you just said, I'm not saying that everybody goes through that, but I don't think people understand in the urban core how often a similar story is told. And one thing I just wanted to ask you is maybe like a best practice, but when you started telling me that you were negotiating with the city for a parcel of land, my mind immediately went to this is the linchpin. Like these things don't happen in a month. These rational conversations take years. And like you said, new people get elected, prior decisions could be, be change. If you just had to say like, what is the secret to working with the city besides, you know, bringing them cookies on Monday there, there it's a real art to work it with these city, uh, these city groups. What made that tick just staying persistent, having a great value proposition because nobody up there is truly incentivized to make a deal. It's like they're getting paid more if this deal happens. So what's, how do you think about it? Well, well to be clear, I think there were literally four or five straight nights before that last city <laughs> where I hadn't slept. And I told my wife the whole story of what was about to happen. And she just looked at me and said, don't ever do that again. Um, no, no, Chris, I yeah. think that it's about showing up and being an honest broker. Number one, it's about listening. And, and when people tell you what they want, um, it's, it's about thinking about how, how, to, how to give them what they want and give them more than what they want. And, and, and I think it's by being fair. Um, but yeah, to your point about did, were you persistent? I mean, yeah, we were we were extremely persistent. Was it was it super scary? Of course, um, but I would commend the city of Houston because you know we're we're a pretty entrepreneurial city. And to your point, th there is nobody at the city made a dollar. Nobody at the city got a promotion. Nobody at the city got a pat on the back for making this happen. And the path of least resistance is usually I'm I'm not going to go and endorse anything. I'm not going to go and try to make something happen. I'm definitely not going to go and you know, endorse closing a police station to build a library in an area. Um, but in this instance, I think everyone understood that there was a need um, for this library. They understood that the project was exactly the type of project that the neighborhood and the city wanted. Um, and they realized that they had a, a role to play. So honestly, we got lucky at the end of the day because it, 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 it came down to the wire. It does. And, and real quick, and maybe this is just unique to this project, but what were you, what did you do at the condo? I didn't quite understand how, what, why did the city want it back in 40 years? And what was your solution to that? So we're sitting in a meeting with city legal. And what they told us at the time is, historically speaking, in the history of the city of Houston, they've always been able to convey only with a 40-year lease and a right to revert back. And, and that was just, at the time, the legal officer's understanding of how they worked. And so 
I kind of raised my hand. I said, I think what you guys are looking for is a condominium interest because you can own this permanently. We can define in the condo declaration the roles and responsibilities between you know, the private developer and the city for maintenance, for, for landscaping, for parking, whatever it is. Um, and, and ultimately, you can own this forever. Um, and, and, and at first they said, we don't do condos. And I kind of said, well, why don't you do condos? This is exactly what you're looking for. And after about two minutes back and forth and explaining this over and over again, they were like, actually, I think a condo may work. And then they hired outside counsel and it did work. So what we did was we, we were able to isolate a parcel that's called 15,000 square feet, where that can be the encumbered parcel by this condominium interest. And you know, financing a mixed use project is difficult. Most lenders are not looking to complicate. They want everything very simple as do investors. So we could take this three acre site, basically put you know 15,000 or so square feet that are complicated. We own as the project, the ground floor of that you know, uh, 15,000 square foot uh, unit, basically. It's, a, it's like a 6,000 square foot building on the ground floor. It has a 11 or so thousand square foot condominium unit on levels two and three that the city owns. And by sort of thinking outside the box, we were able to solve their problem and then and also, also solve our problem, which is we wanted to finance it. We wanted to get it out of the ground and we want to be able to build it and ultimately capitalize it. Right? Yep. All right. A couple of questions. Uh, I'm, now we're back to March 15th, 2020. And uh, the NBA has just announced they're shutting down the league. The Masters has announced their clo- or I guess the Players Championship canceled their tournament. And that's like a real shocker when we didn't know it was coming. And like you said, you're building a mixed-use building with office and retail, maybe the most um, targeted. Uh, if there was a real estate asset class that coronavirus wanted to mess up, it was probably those two things. Can you just share for a little bit? Like That was probably a dark couple of weeks. What have you learned from that? Not just about, your, like, about yourself, but kind of how you would handle situations like that going forward. I mean, I, it takes a lot of guts to say, especially when you hadn't broken ground yet, break ground and keep going. Yeah. And, and mind you, we had at the time four separate construction projects underway. And really we had, we had been scaling our business and it all kind of crescendoed right around that, the, the end of 19, beginning of 20. I think the best, the be, the best statement of that would be, um, we're probably a month and a half in, and we have these weekly meetings with our office brokers where they sort of update us on you know who's in market, who's talking, and as you can imagine, it's I mean it's it's quiet. Everyone is scared. So the first you know week or two, you're sort of hearing about no one's going to the office right now. You know it's 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 kind of quiet out there. And I think by week six, it, it, it's basically a um, a repetition of what you could read in the Wall Street Journal. This is the Corona case count. This is what's happening. This person shut down, whatever. And and I remember I finally said, "All right, guys." And I, I kind of like raised my voice, which I I've been along for the ride for two months, a little shell shocked. And I said, "This right here is our defining moment. We can decide today if we're just going to keep repeating the statistics, or we can decide if we're going to do something about it. And what we're going to do about it, I said, is we are going to make everything that we have absolutely amazing as a digital experience." We're going to make sure that every single targeted tenant um, is is thought about by us, whether it's a handwritten note, whether it's us sending them a little swag from the building saying things will get better. Everybody is going through this together right now. And so when we get out of this, 
and and there's an opportunity to transact again, and hopefully that's in a few months. If it's in a few years, that's fine too. We will be the ones that you know we're we're very prolific in our communication. We'll be the ones that we're focusing on our digital platform. We'll be the ones that are out there, you know, with some goodwill, and um, and, and that's literally how we lived the next I'd say three to six months. We we went to Upwork. We found these amazing European coders that could work for you know awesome prices. And and they were basically targeting, uh, creating targeted videos for prospects where we knew, for example, that, you know, some of these soft goods apparel folks, they couldn't even get on an airplane. They, they, you know, their office is in New York and it's shut down, but they were getting, you know, a handwritten note with a link to a video that was created professionally for them sharing the project. And a few of them came back and said, Hey, you guys were, you know, you guys were in the, in that dark period of time, that little beacon of light that we were looking forward to, to talking to when things you know got better um but yeah it was dark chris uh i mean i i i remember looking around and just thinking you know i, I could talk my way or i can i can work my way out of most situations but how do you work your way out of this one there, there's no easy solution yeah i felt pretty hopeless for a couple months it was I've, I've learned a lot but um yeah man kudos kudos to you that's that's how awesome. many leases by the way did you open up at that time i mean i i can tell you like once you sign a lease very rarely do you ever open lease. You know, it's sort of like this. It's it's a it's a relationship game. I mean, we had we were flooded by requests from tenants, and we we didn't even know what our what our rights were at the time. We kept opening up leases and trying to figure it out because how often do you focus on force majeure language at the time, which turned out to be most of the time not not applicable, right? Yeah, we opened up quite a bit. I think you know until PPP came, which came pretty quick. But there was like a two week window where, when the headlines were reading "Don't pay your landlord," and I vividly remember those. And you got to think. I mean, for both of us, you know, two weeks before all this, I'm an industrial. The market, you know, everything's great. And like for to go from that to two weeks later, "Don't pay your landlord" is such a stark contrast in realities that I, I have to. I've said it on many podcasts. I didn't. It, it was a dark, like there was a dark week. There was a week I literally was like, I don't know if I'm broke. I don't know if I'm, I have no idea because apparently you don't have to pay anybody anymore. And the government's shutting everything down and we've never seen this. Um, but once PPP came out, it was funny. You know, it's amazing how many people, once we started, you know, requesting financials and, you know, have you, have you, uh, lowered executive salaries yet like show us proof that you need the money just for like nope never mind we'll pay and part of that was ppp had showed up but yeah i think we opened up a lot of leases in those first couple of weeks and like you said we we went on the offense and said our tenants are going to remember us throughout this and it's either going to be for a good reason or a bad reason and um you know let's try and make it for a good reason and um we like to think it worked but i love that story that you told um, now that we're kind of out of the virus and we are buying in Houston industrial. So I got my, my teams actually have seven people down there today right now, looking at, um, a deal right now. Uh, what's going north of the, uh, north of the three cap or south of the three cap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're finding some good stuff. We, I love the Houston market and that's what I want to talk about for a bit. Um, you know, it's everybody that's not in it says, well, it's an energy market. It's re it's tied to energy. It's boom and bust, but it's changing quite a bit. Um, like it's not, I, I tell people it's not, it's definitely dependent, but not as dependent. Um, from your perspective now, we don't have to even relate this to COVID, but how are you, how are you describing the Houston market right now? Um, the fundamentals of it, 
what's driving it. What do you, you know, can you speak to your kind of experience in that market and tell me what you're thinking about there? Yeah, I'd say the last six months, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a, a picture in the middle of a, a no hitter. You don't want to talk about it because it's been <laughs> so active. Um, Houston, and I'd say Texas in general, but, but certainly Houston sharing in this, um, it's, it's, it's been pretty fun to be a Houston developer. Um, number one, Houston is a big city. I mean, both in terms of geography and population. Um, it, it historically, the, 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 the sort of like legacy uh, bias that it's this oil and gas camp down and it's boom and bust. Uh, and that may have been true in the 80s. Um, as, as at this point, I think completely, you know, it's, it's, it's just a narrative that, that no longer applies. A um, couple of things happening. Number one, our medical uh, center, you know, largest in the world, 110,000 employees there. It's created this tremendous uh, medical economy that just starts spilling over, um, whether that's medical research, uh, whether that's biotech, you've got you know, a bunch of wet lab space that's being constructed around there now. Um, but really, um, I think from the coast, you're starting to see a lot of capital flow in, whether it's, again, cancer research or, or medical device creation. Um, that, that part of our tech economy has sort of quietly been booming and, and is no longer that quiet. Um, I think you've got this overlying urban renaissance that's been happening for probably over a decade now, but it's it's now starting to get a little bit more national attention where the sort of forgotten parts of, of, of the center of Houston, the great neighborhoods that maybe were a little bit tired and, you know, kind of kind of got a little bit rough around the edges. Um, local developers initially, and now it's a lot of national developers have come in and really invested a lot of money um, to make the city more, more walkable, um, more livable. Um, our park infrastructure is phenomenal. Uh, it's it's probably the one um, nonprofit sector that unites, you know, Republicans and Democrats. Everyone just believes in. It. Everyone says, "Let's turn these old railroads into bike trails. Let's turn these old bayous into great parks. Let's convert kind of these industrial swaths into areas that are that are that are really nice." But um, I'd say Houston is extremely diverse. The international um, migration that's coming in is is massive you're seeing it i mean all parts of south america africa europe i mean it's asia clearly i mean the, there, there's just been an explosion of of culture here um and, and you really feel it in the in the business environment and then i'd say just just you know having a port and, and having this this massive you know distribution infrastructure that exists you know a lot of the containers in the world are starting here and being distributed or winding you know back out of our port and so it's just a big economic juggernaut, you know, it, 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 it's, it's kind of a, an interesting place when you visit it, uh, from, from just like coming from the airport, uh, you're probably thinking, why would somebody live here? But when you get to know the city and the people that are behind it, it's, it's a, it's an amazing place to live. I love it. Houston doesn't have zoning. Do you care about that at all? Is that a, does that a competitive advantage for you? Is it not? Do you think about it? What does that mean to you? You know, it's going to sound a little, a little weird to say this, but I, I kind of wish we had some form of zoning, um, at least form-based zoning. Um, what we have instead are a series of very complicated development regulations, whether it's parking, whether it's setbacks. Um, parking really kind of drives everything here. And our, and our code was written based on some model code by some Buffalo uh, urban planners from the 1970s. So it's very much like if you're retail, you're you know, four per thousand, restaurant, 10 per thousand. These are the setbacks. Um, I'd say it's, it's an advantage in the sense that like 
you can come here and you can impact change very quickly. We can buy something and two to three years later, we can have a built project that's occupied. And in most jurisdictions that have zoning, I think you're probably probably doubling that time, if not more. Um, it, it, it makes, I think, the um, the process a little bit simpler. But as a person that really strives to have high quality development and really cares about the city, like on a normative high level, I almost wish that we had someone sort of watching the back of the city to make sure that developments were a little bit higher quality. Um, but that's sort of where we've created our niche, where you know we think if you do something that is differentiated, it'll be well-received, right? For sure. Let's talk about one more project and then we'll bring it home. The MKT. So I love this project because it was an old class B industrial business park uh, that, you know, from my perspective, I salivate over that kind of stuff and you salivated over it, but then you said, I'm going to redo this whole thing. And I've literally told a lot of people, I send them to that project and say, I think we own projects now that we might be 10 more years out but have that same quality. So let's let's talk about the beginnings of that project and how it came to be. I absolutely love what you did there. Well, thank you. I mean, first of all, I, I want to you know give a shout out to my my business partner, my my close friend Scott Arnaldi from Triton, who um, you know we co-developed that together. So that that one started off kind of fun, where we were we were trying to buy this site um, just under twelve acres, literally at the gateway to the Heights. Again, a few years before, it would have been probably a little bit too early to envision something that was. Um, not industrial being there just because Shepherd, the street that leads into it was kind of an industrial cluster. But fast forward to about five years ago, uh, this legacy railroad line had been converted to the MKT bike trail. The Missouri, Kansas, Texas railroad line became the MKT bike trail. And this project had over a thousand feet of frontage to it. It literally backed up to what was miles and miles of exceptional residential. And we had just finished a few projects, you know, just down this bike trail where I mean, we just knew the pipeline of demand was massive. So I go and put a backup offer in to, to what I understand is this, you know, well-capitalized group, turns out to be, be Scott and Triton, um, and, and just hope that I can, you know, that they don't perform and we can buy it. And then I find out maybe a month or two before they closed um, or before the site was, was going to be closing that it was Scott. So this is just the power of the cold call. I'd never met the guy before, heard great things, but I pick up my phone, call up Scott. Said, hey, this is kind of a weird call, but I'm my name is Steve Verdome. I'm a developer, did some stuff down the street. I understand you may have tied up the site. I want to hear what you're doing with it. Give me a call. Calls me right back. We meet in the parking lot the next day. And and Scott's like a a, a total ninja, just really got it, you know, has has a great um, pedigree and 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 had lived in San Francisco and Chicago and appreciated this adaptive reuse narrative that we believe in. So we sit there and shake hands in this parking lot. And I'm not even kidding, probably. Two weeks later, we're signing, you know, JV docs, wiring money in, we're closing it. But the premise here, which was really interesting, was we had 12 acres, 260,000 square feet of industrial buildings, ranging from semi-dock to, to dock high, uh, ceiling heights ranging from 15 to 24. I mean, it's like your quintessential tilt panel, 1970s, aggregate precast, ugly stuff. Yeah, I love it. But we really, yeah, it's, it, you love it, right? Like that's, you're like, <laughs> I wake up and that's, that's all you're I You're talking dirty to me when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> so we, 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 we sort of look at this thing and say, today, if I was to have 12 acres here, who would want to be here? Ton of restaurants want to be here. Ton of creative office users want to be here now because the Heights is really cool. A bunch of people that would walk over from the bike trail that can shop and take service, you know, retail um, 
classes, whether it's fitness or, or beauty. Um, and so we're looking here and, and, and this thing at the time has $10 in place, gross rents, you know, your, your $3 triple net 1970 special. Um, you know, one of those projects that was probably a little bit under, um, underpriced, uh, but, but over lease, it was hundred percent. That was their, 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 their cash flow mentality. And at the time your, your triple net, you know, so add another 10, 15 bucks a foot minimum at the time, uh, of OPEX, uh, your, your restaurant rents are in the high thirties to forties. Your office rents are in the high twenties to thirties and your retail rents, which are always like unknown are you know, twenties to thirties up to fifties, if it's a really cool space. And if you do the math, if we're able to keep these buildings, not just throw them in the landfill, but re repurpose them and reuse them, we get the benefit of structure. We get the benefit of parking. Um, we get the benefit of, um, kind of how they're oriented. But the challenge is, I mean, it is like the ugliest project. Like you cannot bring people in and say, here's your $35, you know, uh, rent, uh, mixed use project. And so we hired an exceptional architect, Michael Shu out of Austin, who'd be collaborated with a bunch before a great landscape architect firm. We traveled to a bunch of different markets and looked at comparable projects in Austin, Los Angeles, and in Atlanta, there's a great stock of these warehouses along the Beltline that have been converted. Um, and we sort of went for it. There wasn't a comp. There was no reason why um, a capital source or or a bank, you know, should believe in this. But um, I think, you know, again, they're they're being told no a lot, and they're just kind of rolling up our sleeves. We did it, and you fast forward today, even through the pandemic, uh, we're going to be ninety three percent leased on the project. Um, we'll be at, I mean, uh, exactly the yield on cost that we were targeting, which is north of an eight. Um, we are, uh, we, we've got, you know, for certain parts of it, including the creative office, a backlog of tenants that want to be in this project. Um, but to get there, man, it took so much, uh, contingency during, um, during construction because, you know, you open up a wall, these buildings were not built to support, you name it, you know, extra air conditioning, uh, loads, pretty canopies, you know, brand new storefront. Uh, so, so this was really an exercise of, having the right amount of finishes in the right spots, but not going so crazy that the whole building was brand new and rebuilt. So for example, when we redid some of these spaces, the dock doors, which could be eight or nine feet tall, we just used those as sort of like the structural limitations that the windows wanted to be. You know, our architect would have done this awesome 20 foot window wall, but you're not doing that. You're sort of like making do with what you have and, and using more restraint. Um, we're using a lot of reclaimed materials in the landscaping. so. A lot of like sheet pile rusted industrial becomes planters. Um, a lot of native planting that sort of drapes over and covers some of the imperfections. Um, but yeah, man, it was it was it was a uh, a full team effort for two full companies to get it done. Um, but we're super proud of it, and um, and it's been well received by the community. Won a bunch of awards, and I would definitely encourage you as you look at um, at your existing infrastructure of or your existing inventory rather of industrial assets to really ask yourself, you know, if, if there is a demand that's higher, um, what does it take to get there? You know, are you willing to go through with it? And if you're not, but it would make sense, you give me a call. Let's do it together. I, I'm not kidding you. I've had that conversation with my partner here saying I wouldn't do this, but I would call you and you know, th that's your specialty. But I, I think there's a, it's hard to scale that because you got it. It's perfect timing, you know, those properties don't come a dime a dozen, but when they do, when they are there, something special comes together. So, who knows? Maybe one day we'll uh, we'll lock arms. That'd be awesome. And and in that one, the the real smart move on the seller's part was he had a redevelopment clause 
in all of the leases that said, if we are redeveloping the entire of the project uh, on 12 months notice, you know, all, all leases terminate. Um, and so we've, you know, we've looked at a bunch of these other opportunities, but it's very rare that you can actually get to, you know, a big site and, and have it available. To you. That's what I was going to ask you. So when you bought it, it was already leased. And so you had to execute that clause. So you basically collected rent for 12 more months until everybody had vacated. We are the only developers in America that terminated industrial leases to create mixed-use <laughs> office retail restaurant space. I wouldn't say we're smart again, but we have fun doing it. If anybody's listening to this and you haven't been to the website for the MKT, you should. One of the best things about it is those before and after sliders you show, uh, where you sh- you literally just scroll the the mouse and um, you can see what the building looked like before and after. You know, it's funny. So, so, so those came in because. We like the Wall Street Journal had one of those like residential sliders for before and after. Yeah. And at the time, we were having so much trouble convincing people on tours that what we said we were going to do would actually happen because they would just get out there and be like, I don't get it, man. Like, this is an industrial park. What are you talking about? So we would get an iPad out, like the big screen one, and we'd be like, This is what you're looking at, right? And then we would slide over and be like, And this is what it's going to look like. And Something would click nine times out of 10 and they're like, oh my God, if you could pull this off, we're in. This is really cool. It's genius. I, I, I promise you, and I'm not brown nosing, I've been on that site probably 10 times and I just slide those things back and forth. Um, it's one of the best marketing jobs I've seen. And that's where I want to bring this one home is you hire an amazing architect, you hire the landscape architect, you got to sell a vision. I mean, no offense to your buildings, I love them, but they are damn ugly before you did what you were going to do and bring in these these top tier tenants. When you're leasing a project like this, do you have to get a couple big tenants to bite and then you kind of sell off of them? Like, how do you get the first buy-in? And is there some type of sweetener to whoever's willing to jump in the deep end first? Or like, how, how, do, how do you get the energy and momentum going? I think we get told 98% of the time, no, and it's the 2% yes that actually makes it happen. I mean, it, it's it's funny because it really depends on the project. And yeah, ideally, yes, you're getting some kind of awesome pre-leasing that not just sets the, um, you know, the, the, the pre-lease requirement, but also sets the tone of the project. Um, but oftentimes, to your point, y- you can't exactly get someone to come in and bite off on the vision. So in the case of MKT, I think when we broke ground, we were probably 20 to 25% pre-lease. I have to go back and look at the exact number, but it was a collection of a bunch of really small tenants and one office tenant. And to be honest, we were told no so often uh, initially that we we completely reconceived our process because again, you drive people out to this industrial park, you'd show them some kind of brochure and they would just be like, okay, whenever you actually do this, you know, let me know. So what we wound up doing was saying, let's start all of the tours, you know, in our conference room on site, which is pretty amazing. We, we, we bought, uh, this is before um, scooters were pretty, you know, uh, popular and, and, and kind of in wide acceptance, those, those little birds that you see everywhere now. Uh, but we went to Amazon and bought like a dozen scooters. And we would literally get on this bike trail because it's such an amazing experience to go from our office that's on a bike trail, you know, a quarter mile down on a bike trail. You kind of feel like you're on a boat speeding through uh, a lake, but in this case, it's through a great neighborhood. And then we would pull in and we bought this, this old 1970s Airstream that we tricked out and, and sort of had that as our marketing center. And the second that we did that um, and really brought people in and, and sold them the vision in this beautifully repurposed 1970s uh, you know, vehicle that was uh, representative of our vision for the project, a lot more people started to realize, 
we may be a little bit crazy, but we actually are going to execute. And if we do, it's going to be really fun to be part of the team. So I just give you a signature to see what happens kind of thing. So um, yeah, we want getting a lot of buy-in from primarily restaurants initially, and then a couple of creative offices, which then, you know, the snowball started happening. But um, for projects like that, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. The, the closure rate, the, the rate of success on, on a tour to, to actually getting a lease done, when you deliver the project versus when you're selling a rendering, I mean, it's got to be five or six to one. All right, man. This was uh, this was great. I'm really, uh, yeah, this was awesome. I, I learned a ton. I'm I'm glad we got to connect, and I really enjoy following you and what you're doing. Um, you got good stuff going on. Well, I appreciate that. We're we're now expanding um, into San Antonio, looking at some stuff. In, in Dallas, not in Fort Worth, but um, I mean it. If you ever have anything that you think is interesting, give me a shout. Um, now the challenge is finding great deals, not, not necessarily finding the capital or, or, or the team. It's, it's finding the deals. Yeah, it's harder. Things are expensive right now. Yeah, if, you, if you're up in DFW, let's, uh, let's get together. Like I said, I got my whole team's in Houston today, and I'm down there now about once a quarter. So maybe we can go to dinner or grab a drink or something. I would love that. Yeah, vice versa. Uh, next time you're in town, you give me a shout. I'll do the same next time I'm in the uh, Metroplex. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.